Acts. We've told you we were going there for quite some time. Last week we dove in. Week one we looked at several lies that culture, lies that people in the church have accepted about sex. And, and really the, the bottom line that we left you with last week was Paul's words to the church at Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, it's God's will you be sanctified. It's God's will that you be holy, that you avoid sexual immorality. Well, today we're going to talk about purity. And, and the idea of purity is a joke to many people. I know people that would say, that's just not feasible whatsoever. There's no way I can live the life of purity in America 2012. You've got to be kidding me. And, and the bottom line answer is that's exactly what God wants from Christ followers. If you wear the label Christ follow, follower, God wants you to be pure. Next week, if we want to look at the whole month, next week we're going to look at the issue of homosexuality and same-sex marriage. And I know right then, just saying that word, that's put some of us on, on defense. We're not sure, are we even going to come next week? I don't want to hear gay bashing. I, I don't want to hear uh, the preacher take down my friend, my sister, my mother, my father. And I promise you, from the bottom of my heart, that will not happen. That, that should never happen in any church that calls itself Christian. But what we will do, my friends, is we will look at what God's Word has to say on this topic. We're going to look Old Testament, we're going to look New Testament, and we're going to answer the question, what do we do as Christ followers living in a pluralistic society where you know our, our leader, our president, has said that he has changed his perspective on same-sex marriage? What, what do we do? That's next week. And then week four, two weeks from today, October 28th, Sex by the Book, we're going to look at God's master plan. And we're going to look at what God wants marriage to be for those of us that are married and what God wants marriage to be for those of us that are single. And you may say, that doesn't make sense. Come back in two weeks. We'll figure it out. The big idea today is really pretty simple. Christ followers, whether single, whether married, or whether no longer married, for whatever reason, you are called to be pure. That means if you're a 15-year-old boy and your body's doing crazy things to you and your hormones are out of control, God wants you to be pure. That means if you've been married for 20 years and you say, man, is my marriage what it was in year one? Does the spark still fly like it used to? God wants you to be pure. And if you find yourself in, in the, the predicament, the situation, you were married, you're no longer married for whatever reason, God wants you to be pure. One more time, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. It's God's will that you be sanctified, that you be holy, that you avoid sexual immorality. Now, that's an imperative. That's a command of Scripture. This is not a suggestion. This isn't the Apostle Paul talking to this first century church saying, it'd be a good idea if you can be pure, but you guys figure it out. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, it's God's will that you be pure. So I have a question for you this morning, and I invite you to talk back to me. I know we get nervous in church when the preacher says that, but I really want to know what you think. Considering that command of Scripture, why is it so hard to keep? Why in America 2012 is living the pure life morally such a challenge even for Christ followers, even for people who call Jesus Christ Lord and Savior? Why is it so tough? What keeps us from obeying this command? What do you think? Media, okay. Everybody does it, okay. 
Do we have me first mentality? I need to be happy. That's the most important thing. That's the, that's the menta- mentality, the ideology that a lot of people have. Kind of a me-ism in many ways. Well, my answer for you, I'm going to not do justice to it, but I want to give you two words that normally don't go together, but I think this is the answer. I think we are being inundated with what I'm going to call purity busters. We're being inundated in America 2012 with purity busters, and I'm just going to share four. There are many, many more than this, but the first one is this. The first purity buster is this, 2012 American culture, 2012 American culture. Um, I love our country. I'm glad I live in America. I don't want to live anywhere else. Anytime you start talking about American culture, people think, are you really in love with your country? Are you really pro-American? I am, but I am deeply, deeply, deeply troubled by where the trend line is going in this area. We see in 2012 a perceived freedom from past constraints that I believe is not healthy. I believe it's taking us on a slippery slope that will lead to a moral destruction. We have, in so many ways, an anything-goes philosophy. Now, last week I talked about desperate housewives, and I talked about the, the inundation that the American male has when it comes to sexuality. Let me just tell you, ladies, I'm not letting you off the hook at, at all by that, okay? It's all of us in this. One of the most popular television shows that became a, 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 a smash success as a movie was Sex in the City. Sex in the City. Its primary audience was a female audience. There's a book that took our country by storm in the last couple years. And as soon as I say it, some of you are going to smirk because you know exactly what I'm talking about. How about Fifty Shades of Grey? I did a little research on Fifty Shades of Grey today, and, and if you don't know what Fifty Shades of Grey is, bravo, two thumbs up. But, but a lot of us do. And here is how it was described in its release. It says, the book's erotic nature and perceived demographic of its fan base as becoming composed largely of married women over the age of 30 led the book to be dubbed mommy porn by many news agencies. It's there. I had a lady come up to me after first service, and I don't have permission to share this, so I'm not going to tell you her name, and and I don't want you to repeat this, but she said she works at a place with several other women, and when this book was released, there was an enormous peer pressure in her office. You have to read this book. You have to read this book. And she said she felt beaten down after about six weeks. So she went out and she bought the book and she started reading it. And she said she got to about chapter two and she said, this is garbage. She said something else actually, but she she just threw it away. And she said, you wouldn't believe the ridicule that I faced when I shared my perspective on that book. She said, you want to talk about peer pressure? That's peer pressure. What about one of the most popular movies of 2012? It made $113 million at the box office this summer. What was it? Magic Mike. Magic Mike. I know. I, I, I know. It's a story about a male stripper. Now, someone's going to send me an email and say, but pastor, there's a good storyline, or there's a happy ending, or there's something along the lines. I can't tell you the number of teenagers that I hear talking about how awesome 
watching The Hangover or The Hangover Part 2 was. Am I here to beat up on Hollywood? Well, actually, yes, I kind of am in many ways, but my point is this. It's everywhere. We're being inundated. And it's a purity buster. A purity buster. We showed the movie Courageous here on a Sunday night, last Sunday of September, and that is an awesome movie. It's turned into an awesome curriculum. We have one of our Bible school classes right now, Roger and Jan Dial's class. I think Josh Retzer is actually kind of taking the lead on this study right now. They're going through the Courageous study. We showed the movie Courageous on Sunday night for free here. Didn't cost you anything. You could even bring your own popcorn if you wanted to. And we had about 45 people come out. And I'm glad that those 45 people came out. That's awesome. $113 million was brought in by Magic Mike. Our culture is busting us from a purity standpoint. Number two, this gets even more uncomfortable, pornography. I made reference to it briefly last week, um, and I had some people challenge me. I I shared the statistic that 90% of teenagers have seen pornography. I had somebody tell me they didn't think that was possible. So I went and did some research. I found some um, scientific research that's been published by Pastor Mark Driscoll, of Mars Hill Church in Seattle, and we've got two PowerPoint slides I want to put up on the screen, and this is taken directly from him. I stole it from him without permission. And, and, and the first thing that just jumps out at you is that 90% of children ages 10, 8 to 16 have viewed pornography. 90%. 9 out of 10. The largest consumers of pornography are boys aged 12 to 17. You probably can't see that bottom stat because the keyboard's in the way, but it says 70% of men ages 18 to 34 visit a porn site every month. And then let's go to the next slide. Look at this one. One in six women struggle with a porn addiction. And there's a statistic on there that makes me shiver. 50% of pastors regularly look at porn. And what was interesting, when Driscoll published this, he started getting blasted by pastors that said it's not possible. So they did some additional research. They talked to the Pew Research Company, and they found out that it's right at one out of every two pastors view pornography regularly. It's a purity buster. It's killing us. Number three, I'm moving on, peer pressure. Now, peer pressure has been around literally forever. I mean, you go to Genesis chapter 3, and we see peer pressure. Hey, this snake says we should eat the apple. What do you think? That's peer pressure, okay? And I'm not naive enough to realize that I preach one sermon, and peer pressure is no longer an issue. But here's what I want to say. Peer pressure is a big deal for our teenagers that are sitting up here, but peer pressure is a big deal for all of us at times in our lives. You don't have to just be a teenage boy or girl to suffer the effects of peer pressure. And the reality is, in 2012, what is this, October 14, 2012, there's an enormous push coming from, I think, well-meaning, I think, well-intending friends to push us to a life that's not God-honoring. Bottom line. And we have to acknowledge that. We have to realize that. Not everyone that gives you advice, not everyone that makes a suggestion about your life is going to be coming at it from a Christ follower perspective. So not all advice should be listened to equally. Peer pressure can be a purity buster. And then number four, a lack of concrete communication from reputable sources. Bottom line, 
our kids, our, our adults, we're getting messages, but are they from reputable sources? Are they from sources that we can trust? Well, those are four purity busters. There's probably 44 more that I could have come up with, but what I want to do for kind of the bulk of this sermon is give you some teaching points that that you can take with you. And I think what would be great, this is just kind of my dream, not just for this sermon, but for all sermons, is that the sermon really doesn't end at 12 o'clock when we leave, or 12.15 or whatever time it is. But that if you're a family, the, the communication would continue. Or if you have a small group, the communication would continue. Or if you have a coffee club, you all go to Shell in the morning or the shack or wherever, the conversation might continue. And what I want to do for the bulk of our teaching time today is I want to look at three heroes of the faith that struggled with purity, sexual purity. They, they faced the temptations. Some succeeded, some failed. But I want to see what life lessons we can learn from some giants of the faith. And the first one is a guy by the name of Joseph. You know the name Joseph from the book of Genesis. Not Joseph, the father of Jesus, the earthly father of Jesus, but Joseph, the 11th of 12 sons of Jacob. He was the favored son by a long shot. That really haunted him in many ways. He just got beat up because of that, sold into slavery. But God blessed his socks off. God just loved Joseph. And God put Joseph in a situation. Actually, he probably didn't wear socks, did he? I just thought about that. That's one of those slips right there. They didn't wear socks in Bible times. So anyway, sorry. Bottom line is this. God blessed him. He finds himself second in command of all of a guy by the name of Potiphar's household. Big, important Egyptian ruler, had a whole bunch of uh, land, had a, had a whole bunch of cattle, had a whole bunch of servants, and Joseph is in charge. And he says, Joseph, anything here is yours except my wife. Now, his wife, I think, had read Fifty Shades of Grey or something along those lines because she had, not really, she had her eyes set, some of you are writing that down, read Fifty Shades of Grey. No, I'm just kidding. She really wanted Joseph. She wasn't satisfied with Potiphar. We don't know what was going on in her mind. And it says in Genesis 39 that day after day after day after day, she came to Joseph and said, come be with me, lie with me, be intimate with me. And one day it was just the two of them and she grabbed a hold of him. And if you go to Genesis 39 and you look at verse 12, it says that Joseph fled. It said that he left his cloak in her hand and he ran out of the house. And the principle that I want to share with you today whether you're married, single, or no longer married, is that you need to have a plan like Joseph had. If you're struggling with the computer, if you're struggling with a relationship at work or somewhere, and you think it's going the wrong direction, and it's going to take you morally a place, you know God doesn't want you to go have a plan. Notice here, Joseph doesn't try to rationalize. He doesn't try to think through the situation. He realizes this can't be good and he left. He left with his cloak in her hands. He didn't say, I could probably get in trouble for this. Oh, by the way, he would get in trouble for that. He just fled. He had a plan. Second hero of the faith that I want to look at is a guy by the name of Samson. It's from the period of Judges. It's in the book of Judges. The book of Judges is the seventh book in the Old Testament. And it was kind of an odd time in the history of of Israel, this period of Judges. It was after the wilderness wanderings and the conquering of the land of Canaan. But it's before the period of the kings, the Davids and the Solomons and such. And during this time, Israel, time and time and time again as a people, kept turning 
turning their back on God and, and doing immoral things. They would worship the Baals. They would worship the Asherahs. And every time, God would oppress them through a foreign people. And every time they would say sorry, every time they would repent, and every time God would raise up a judge, a deliverer. So Samson is a judge, but I don't want you to think of Judge Wapner in, in a black robe, pounded on a gavel, as much as I want you to think of a UFC fighter. Or I want you to think of you know, a, a great champion boxer like a, like a Mike Tyson before he went crazy. Someone that just is, is powerful and just on top of things and no one would ever mess with him. That was Samson. Samson had it going on. And all the people that would come after Samson, Samson was victorious. Because God had blessed him in an incredible, incredible way. Samson's entire life was put together pretty well, except for one area in his life. He was a moral disaster. I don't mean he struggled with temptation. I mean he was a moral disaster. He hooked up with a prostitute by the name of Delilah. And time and time and time again, Delilah tried to find the source of his strength and oppress him, and you would think after a while he would realize, she's no good for me. But he never figured it out until it was too late. And his moral disaster lifestyle destroyed him entirely. Now, it's got kind of a good story. He prayed, God, give me strength one more time. And he killed a whole bunch of Philistines. I mean, that's a really cool story in Judges chapter 16. But what I want you to see is that he had it all, and this one little area of his life destroyed him. And guess how that connects for you and me in 2012? You can be the, the giant of the giants in the business world. And if you're not put together morally, it can and it just might destroy you. You can be the greatest teacher that your school has ever seen. And if you're not put together morally, it can and just might destroy you. You could be maybe the most successful athlete in our country. And if you're a disaster morally, it's going to cause you trouble. And some of you may scoff at that because we read about athletes and their exploits, but how would you rate the success of someone like, say, Tiger Woods before November of 2010? and after. I'm not here to beat up on him. I I don't even know him. I think he would say that he allowed his moral life to bring ruin to his entire life. And so the lesson that I want us to learn from Samson is make sure you've got this area of your life in step with your Christian walk. And if you don't, it's not too late. If it's not, don't throw in the towel and say, woe is me. Make a change today. I'll have people come to me and they'll feel really embarrassed about sin that has really caused problems in their life. And they'll say things like, I'm a failure. They'll say things like, I've I've lost all integrity. They'll say things like, I could never fulfill my, my Christian dreams that I once had. And I would say to you, we sang about this morning that word called grace. And if that's where you find yourself, make a change today. Start over today. Samson had it all together except his moral life, his sexual life 
and it destroyed him. Uh, Character number three, hero number three, is probably the most tragic of all. It's David. We spent the month of July looking at David, and we looked at the whole David and Goliath, and his calling, and, you know, he danced in his underwear, and all all the really cool things about David. But what we didn't look at in July was kind of his darkest hour, the moment that he really, really blew it. David's nickname, by the way, was, you know, a man after God's own heart, which is a pretty cool nickname if you think about it in many ways. I'm GT, he's the man after God's own heart. But the man after God's own heart, I mean, just, a, just an incredible, incredible, put together giant for the Lord. I mean, he had it all. He's writing worship songs, he's killing giants, he's leading the country to where they've never been before. He is the man. But when you read 2 Samuel chapter 11, the very first verse, by the way, here's how it reads. It says, in the springtime, when the kings went off to war, David stayed in Jerusalem. And you read that and you think, well, big deal. What's that matter? Why does that matter? So he stayed in Jerusalem. Well, David was a fierce warrior. His life was being a warrior. Yes, he was king, but, but he earned his bones being a warrior. And when the troops are off fighting, he's stayed home. And just a couple verses later, we read that it's late at night. He's probably bored. He goes for a walk. And the next thing you know, he sees a beautiful woman bathing. Beautiful. And before you know it, the man after God's own heart has become an adulterer and a deceiver and a murderer. And and yes, it happened like that. And so the lesson for me, the lesson for us this morning is don't buy complacency. Don't settle for complacency. If you've struggled with pornography, don't say, it's been 16 months since I've viewed pornography. Pray every day the fourth part of the prayer of Jabez, Lord, keep me from evil. Be diligent. Stay hungry. Well, teaching point number two is another obvious one. This isn't rocket science. You didn't have to come to church to hear it, but I'm going to share it with you anyways. Anyway, once you move forward sexually, it is really difficult to put on the brakes or to shift into reverse. Let's remember back to that time, and if this is where you're at in your life, I'm not talking to you, but to all the rest of us, do you remember that first time when you held the opposite sex's hand and you got that kind of fluttering in your heart and your hand got all sweaty, so you stopped holding their hand real quick, and you wiped off. But, I mean, just holding a girl's hand would just make my heart explode in a lot of ways. Um, I'll be honest, when I hold my wife's hand today, I don't have that same reaction. I, I wish I did. I don't. Here's the point. Let me illustrate it for you like this. I was nine years old when I got to go to my first Illini game. It was a cold snowy night in February, and Illinois was playing the number one team in the country, Michigan State, Magic Johnson. 30 minutes before the game, we get a call, extra tickets, do you want to go? I sat in the fourth highest row at the assembly hall. I mean, they look like little ants down on the court, but I'd never been to a Illini game. I'd never eaten popcorn with my dad in the assembly hall, and it didn't matter. And when Eddie Johnson hit the jump shot to beat Magic Johnson and send Michigan State back to East Lansing, baby, it was the greatest night of my life. I was on fire at that point as a nine-year-old. Well, let me fast forward to my uh, high school and college years. I had several friends that I went to high school with that were in the Orange Crush. 
So I bet 10 different times in high school and in college, they were able to sneak me in with one of those Orange Crush shirts, and I got to sit in the Orange Crush section and cheer on the Illini. And this was in the days of the Flying Illini, Nick Anderson, Kenny Battle, Kendall Gill. And you know what? When I was at the Orange Crush jumping up and down, cheering them on, there's no way you'd get me to the fourth highest row in the assembly hall. I'd been there. I'd done that. That was really no big deal. Well, today, somehow, I'm just blessed, I get to actually go to games and sit on press row. I get to go to the locker rooms after the games. I get to talk to the players. I get to eat in the media room with all the media giants, if there is such a thing. And if you said, Greg, would you just want to go sit with the Orange Crush? It's really not that big of a deal. I've been there, and I've done that. And I would just say, once you start moving forward sexually, it's hard to go back. It's hard to say, well, we'll just hold hands. It's hard. Teaching point number three, and this is for everybody. Cognitively understand the impact of your sexual choices. Now, I've got a couple friends that I'm going to bring up to the stage right now. Jordan and Morgan, come on up. And, and I have brought with me today, we started off with a dozen beautiful roses. I think we're down to maybe nine or ten, but still looks beautiful, doesn't it? I mean... Wow, it's just awesome. You know, guys, you give your wife this, it's a, it's a surefire win. And what I want to do is I want to take out this beautiful rose right here, and I would like you girls to smell this rose. Is it a real rose? Yeah. Is it beautiful? Yes. Okay, now if I asked you to go and present this rose to somebody, what would you probably be saying by going and presenting someone with that rose? That would be a sign that I really like you a lot. Yeah, there you go, there you go, right. If I went to my wife and gave her this vase of roses, I would be communicating, I really, really love you. And what I want to do for the purpose of this demonstration is I want to say that this rose signifies something beautiful. It signifies something special. It signifies something that is personal to each and every one of us, and we've only got one. So what I want you to do with this right now is I want you to tear the petals of that rose off for me. Will you please? There's a lot of petals, aren't they? Yeah. Hey, go ahead. You guys can do it together. Tag team the effort. Now, these petals, that's still pretty, isn't it? I mean, I could throw them down the aisle and we could have a wedding, right? That, that would be appropriate. Is that part of the rules here? Are we allowed to do that? Can we do the rose petals? Or Okay, we're not really sure. But the point is, um, roses are beautiful. E- even the petals individually are beautiful. Yeah, there's a lot of petals on a rose, aren't there? Man! Should have had five or six people up here right now. Look at that. They got them all off there. And you've got your beautiful, beautiful petals here. And you've got what used to be a beautiful rose here. Now, if I walked up to mom and gave her this, what would that signify? Nothing. Huh? I'm a, I'm a cheapskate. Get some class. What are you doing? I, I don't want to do that. And I do want to give mom a rose. So I want you to put that back together for me. Can you do that? Can you put that back together? I've got some equipment over here for you, and um, what do we have here? We've got some rubber cement and some glue stick, and um, oh, it's all gone. The glue stick's all gone. We've got some duct tape. Duct tape's good for anything. We've got a hammer here, so you guys get going on that. Let's try to put that back together. Um, how, how are they going to do at that project, do you think? What's that rose going to look like when they get done? Is it going to look like this? What do you think? They're, they're pretty good. I mean, they've, they've been paying attention in art class. I mean, look at them. Look at them attacking that rose. You know what the reality is, is that 
Once I take this beautiful rose and I start tearing it apart and ripping it apart, it's not quite as beautiful anymore. It's not quite as lovely. And try as I may, I'm not going to be able to put it back together. It's never going to be the beautiful thing that it grew to become. And I share this impassioned plea with my high school friends and my college friends and those of you that that have your virginity. Once you give it away, it's gone. It's gone. Now, if you're sitting there and you're saying, man, Greg, I've blown it. I'm not who I should have been. Is there hope? Absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. Think. Cognitively understand the impact of the choices you are making. Well, here we are once again toward the end. And here you are once again more than likely saying, it's pretty depressing, preacher. I'm not finding a lot of encouragement there. So what we need to do as we wrap up today is we need to come up with a game plan. A game plan for Christ followers seeking a life of sexual purity. And it is possible. Um, I am far from perfect. Let me just tell you this right now. I, I I have sin that I wish I didn't have. I will tell you it is possible to live as a single Christian in 2012 and be a virgin on your married day on your marriage day, on your wedding day. It's possible. It is possible. Don't give up that dream. So what's the game plan? I think number one, first and foremost, all of us have to admit and confess our sexual fallenness. We're all susceptible. It's a challenge for each and every one of them. If you're sitting there and you're saying, you know, that's an okay sermon, but that's somebody else's problem. That's somebody else's deal. I've got it all figured out. Be careful, friend. Be careful. Pride comes before the fall. Number two, commit to keep God's standards of sexual purity alive and well in your life. And if you haven't, start today. Start today. It starts by knowing what God's Word says. I was at the Whitsky House for a Tim Hawkins comedy fest a couple weeks ago, and I noticed on their refrigerator, and I don't know if it was Michelle or Mark or one of the kids, a note card, and it had a scripture on there. And that meant that every time someone in the family went to the refrigerator for a glass of milk or to make a sandwich or whatever it may be, they're reading God's Word. Maybe, just maybe, you need to leave here today and get a note card and put 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 on your note card, that it's God's will that you be holy. It's God's will that you be sanctified and that you put it in your car or you put it in your bedroom or you put it in your bathroom or you put it on your refrigerator and you're reinforced by God's word. And then finally, number three, I would challenge you, especially if you are a parent, to engage in difficult and uncomfortable conversations about what I'm going to call sexual expectations. Too many spouses don't have honest, heartfelt talks, husband and wife about what's good and what is not so good. That's one of the cool things about this courageous study that I think is going on, is that there's going to be some conversations that will take place through that in many ways. Parents, I would tell you right now, if you have not clearly defined your expectations for your children, 
you're making a mistake. My parents were awesome Christian people. They had me in church literally every Sunday I was alive. And I think my sex talk went something like this. God doesn't want you to have sex. Don't get anybody pregnant or something along those lines. Well, there's a whole bunch in between there. Let me just tell you. Let's have some clear-cut, uncomfortable conversations. Let's not have a bunch of gray area out there. I would just say if you have a home computer and you have a teenager or you have a male or you have a female, no one should have unfettered computer access where nobody can see anything that's going on. I read my kids' texts all the time. It makes them mad, but that's okay. I'm paying for the phone, right? I check history on computers all the time. And you know what? Your kid will get over it. They really will. They'll, they'll move on. They'll get mad about something else down the road. So don't be afraid to have some clear-cut expectations. And then finally, I would say sometimes friends, peer-to-peer conversations have not taken place that could have been very helpful along the way. My bottom line for you this morning, as we look at the rows, what's the rows look like here? I think you guys did better first service, but... You think that's better? Yeah. Okay. I'm not sure I'm buying that. Give them a hand, by the way. Great job. Great job. Here's my bottom line. In 1 Thessalonians 4, we see that verse 3 that we spent a lot of time with the last two weeks. Paul continues to teach this church, and he concludes this paragraph with these two sentences. He says, God did not call us to be impure, God called us to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but rejects God who gives you his Holy Spirit. And really, that's Paul's way of saying, this isn't Paul's teaching. This isn't Greg's teaching. This is God's teaching. God wants us to be pure. Those of us that are Christ followers, He wants us to be holy. He wants us to be sanctified. He wants us to avoid sexual immorality. Will it be hard? You better believe it. Is it possible? Not only is it possible, it's God's will for your life. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. And thank you for the opportunity to study a topic that, wow, we don't talk about at church very often. And shame on us that we don't. And Father, help us not to end today without realizing that we're called to be pure, we're called to be holy, we're called to be sanctified, but we're sinners. We fall short of God's glory. We've missed the mark. And so thank you so much that even if we've blown it, even when we blow it, we've got this gift we know is grace. Jesus went to the cross and he died because I'm a sinner, because we are sinners. And so however this message was heard this morning, let us never forget the best news of all, that Jesus brings hope, that God, you, our Father, offer grace. We love you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Every week we offer an invitation. And if you're not a Christian, we invite you to come and to give your life to Jesus Christ, to become what I call a Christ follower. 
we also offer the opportunity for people who, who are in need of prayer. And I'll tell you, I've had some conversations in the last two weeks. This topic has really hit some hot buttons with some people. Really hurting. Really struggling. And if you want someone to pray with you, if you want to pray for someone going through a tough time, I'm up front. I'd be happy to pray for you as we stand together and Jim leads us in our song of commitment. We bow our hearts. We bend our quick reminders. First of all, the little kids will be going to the spare time lanes 12 to 3, 12 to 3.30, excuse me, 12 to 3.30. Uh, please be patient. We have a new check-in policy procedures. So as you check in your children, please just be patient with us. Uh, we'll get you through the line as quickly as possible and eat as quickly as possible. Also want to let you know that high school, there's a mission trip meeting happening right after this service. And again, that's over there for the mission trip that will be happening this summer. I know you think it's early, a lot of things to talk about. So if you're even interested in going this summer, uh, please, parents and kids, go over to the Cable Building for that meeting for the mission trip this summer. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for the great day that you've given us. Father, we love you so very much. And, and Father, we just thank you for all the things that you do for us and through us. Father, help us that we just might continue to be a light in this world for you. In Jesus' name, amen.